Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. You know, one of the biggest hindrances to our relationship with God and even other people is often not external factors, but it's our own egos, our own defenses, our own shame. And one of the characters we can see this in is is the Apostle Peter, after he denies Jesus and, and then is later restored on the beach. I start off this message by doing a song, which we did in the service, but uh, this is just a recording of that song uh, from one of my albums and uh, leads into the message because this is kind of how I have processed this myself. This message is entitled, When the Defenses Come Down. It is about encountering God beyond our shame and our ego. So let's head to the talk. Thanks for listening. the strength to run to stay by your side until kingdom come but the testing of my faith in fires of adversity proved that in my own strength I'm still your enemy Prove it in my own strength I'm still your enemy This testing has revealed I'm not as good as I believed But the end of myself It's where I start to see Yeah, I'm a broken mess But that's all that you need To the foreign spirit You give the kingdom keys To the foreign spirit Grace is a constant wind blowing For the troubled waters of my soul Faith is raising up a sail He's but a fragile reed 
man to talk when he stutters in his speech You hear a song when I can't even form a melody Who caused me to see through impossibilities I'm a broken mess And that's all that you need To the poor in spirit You give the kingdom keys And I had the strength to run To stay by your side until kingdom come But the testing of my courage and fires of adversity prove that in my own strength, I am still your enemy. This sifting has revealed I'm not as good as I believed, but the end of myself is where I start to see. Yeah, I'm a broken mess, but that's all that you need. To the poor in spirit, you give the kingdom keys. Grace is a constant wind a-blowing o'er the troubled waters of my soul. Faith is raising up a sail, releasing the oars and letting go. You call a man to rock when he's but a fragile reed. You call a man to talk when he stutters in his speech. You hear a song when I can't even form a melody. You cause me to see through impossibilities. Grace is a constant wind a-blowing. O'er the troubled waters of my soul, faith is raising up a cell, releasing the oars and letting go. I'm letting go. (laughs) It's like a poetry beat slam. You're supposed to snap. (laughs) Well, two weeks ago, we, we celebrated Easter, Easter Sunday, which is the Super Bowl Sunday of of church services, (laughs) or should I say the Super Super Bowl is the Easter of 
Sports. Okay, never mind. Um, but oftentimes we tend to think of Easter as if it is only a day. When in reality, in the church calendar, Easter is a season. It's the season that extends from Easter Sunday to Pentecost Sunday, which comes up in a couple of weeks. And it is an entire season devoted to reflecting on the risen Christ and the implications of that in our life. And today we heard two passages. I wanted the passages read during worship today because there is something about encountering God's presence in the scripture when we're worshiping together. It's one of my favorite ways. You know, when you're just in the midst of worship, no commentary on the scriptures, just what does it reveal to you in the moment? And in these two different passages, the one shared by Marsha and the one shared by Greg, we see two different ways of experiencing conversion. There's the Paul on the road to Damascus kind, you know, the the blinding white light. Your life is going one way, one moment, and then a different way the next moment. And then there's Peter's, which might be a little bit harder to say, you know, like at what point, you know, did did Peter kind of cross the line? I think a good way to think of this is, I'll, I'll use this analogy from my own life. You know, since we planted this church, when we first moved over here and planted this church, I think my daughter Tevia was in fifth grade. It's been a long time. And my son was in first grade. And we would, each year we would make a journey up to my dad's house up in East Texas. He lives about an hour west of Shreveport, and we go hang out with the family up there. And we've got this little family tradition that when we cross the Texas state line, maybe it's just because I still maintain Texas citizenship, just in case everything falls apart in Louisiana. Louisiana's like, falls apart, we got this. Um, Just, I'm sorry. (laughs) You know, that Texas pride, it still comes out occasionally. Um, we got this little, this little uh, tradition that when we cross the state line, you know, you see that big star and the Texas flag and the, the welcome center. When we cross the border, we break out into song. The stars at night are big and bright. Heart of Texas, it reminds me of the one I love. Deep in the heart of Texas. Yes, we, that, that's our, our silly little family tradition, among other silly little family traditions. But it doesn't always work out that way because sometimes we leave too late in the afternoon or early evening, and, and oftentimes we're crossing the Texas border, and I'm the only one in a car that's awake because I've inevitably, inevitably put on some audio book that is very interesting to me, like history or philosophy, and it puts everybody else to sleep. And uh, so when we cross into Texas, it is a conscious moment for me. I can say I know the moment that we crossed into Texas, but for everybody else in the car, Texas will be a reality that they wake up to. And anybody who grew up in Texas loves this analogy because it it, it puts Texas as a state of enlightenment, but I won't say anything else about that. (laughs) But that is kind of what we see going on in the journeys of Peter and Paul, Paul, when he encounters Christ, it is a a specific moment where he can say, that's when it happened. Nothing was the same from that point on. And some people have had that, that kind of conversion experience where it's like, man, my life was in a desperate place. I called out to the Lord or I experienced something and then I'm I'm just never going back and, and going down the road. Other people have a much more gradual journey. At what point can we say, like, Peter was a, a, a 
complete convert? Was it the moment that Jesus came up to him and said, follow me and we're going to go catch people instead of fish? Was it that moment? Was it a couple of years into the ministry of Jesus where Jesus looks at his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, bingo, Peter. You got the right answer. And guess what? You didn't think that up yourself. It was revealed to you by my father in heaven. Was that the moment? Was it sometime after the resurrection? Was it sometime before even the story recorded of Peter happened? It's hard to know, but one thing we can certainly see about Peter is that Peter's faith is consistently evolving. And where we get to today is what is known as the restoration of Peter. This is, as, as the scripture that was read during worship by Greg, this was the third time that Jesus had revealed himself to his disciples, and this is a very, this is probably one of the most significant encounters that, G, that, that Peter ever has with Jesus. But before we get to that, I need to rewind a little bit. So if we go back a few days before this happened, before the cross, the night that Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples, It is funny because after Jesus introduces the Eucharist for the first time and they take the first communion, it says that they start fighting over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. It's just, it's a silly little situation. It shows how much these disciples just don't get it. And Jesus is like, dude, the greatest in my kingdom will be the servant of all. It's not about titles and power and lording, you know, throwing your weight around. It is actually taking a towel and washing people's feet. But after that, Jesus says, All of you guys are going to betray me tonight. You're all going to deny that you know me. And Peter, in typical Peter faction, what what we love about Peter, he's not afraid to speak his mind. Peter says, no, 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 Lord, I'm going with you to the end. I don't care if I have to go to prison. I don't care if I have to, to die. I am with you. And Jesus says, Peter, hate to break it to you. You're going to actually deny me three times. Before tomorrow morning, before the sun comes up. And Peter doesn't believe it. At this point, Peter doesn't have much in the way of self-awareness. You know, sometimes I get nervous some of the songs that we sing in church because they're easy songs to sing sometimes. You know, like, God, you know, I'll climb the highest mountain. I'm with you to the end. I'm like, really? Ah, I don't know. I don't know if we'd do that. I don't know if I'd do that. I'd like to think that. Peter thinks that he's, he's the rock. He's the one that got the revelation from God. He's the one Jesus actually changed his name from Simon, which means a fragile, a reed, to rock. And Peter says, no, Jesus, I'm with you to the end. And then Jesus says something that's very interesting. He says, Peter, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. But I'm praying for you that when that's over with, you'll actually have something to strengthen your brothers. Sifting wheat. This is an interesting metaphor that, that Jesus employs, and it's, it's a very important uh, way to understand what's going on in Peter's life. This is not the kind of word you want to hear from Jesus. You know, Satan's coming for you, Peter, and I'm praying for you. <laughs> I think we'd like to imagine Jesus saying, I rebuke you, Satan, off his life, but 
<laughs> Peter's saying, Jesus is saying, no, I'm praying for you that, that when this is done, you'll actually have something to strengthen your brothers. If you were to harvest wheat back at that time in the world, you'd bring in the sheaves of wheat, and before you could make that wheat into bread, you would have to make sure that the, the kernels of wheat were separated from the chaff. And if you've ever seen wheat before, like in its natural state, there's the, the dry, crackly stuff on the outside. It's just like dead wheat skin stuff that surrounds the actual kernel of wheat. You can't do anything. I don't think there's any, you know, I'm sure there's some diet out there that, that it, these days where you eat just chaff, the chaff diet. It's low-cal. It's low-cal. <laughs> I smell money. I smell money. <laughs> the chaff diet. But, but, but the chaff, it, it's this dead stuff this crackly dead stuff that surrounds the kernels of wheat. And chaff is important. It protects the wheat until the wheat has fully matured and can actually be you know, used for making bread or planting more wheat. And the chaff, I think, is a great analogy for our ego. You know, we, we, you develop your ego when you're young and, and, and entering into adulthood. You figure out coping mechanisms, defenses. You figure out how to get your value by your gifts and the things that you do, maybe your sense of humor, maybe the way you excel in school. And that's all great. But the problem is by the time you get into your 20s, you tend to think that you're all this stuff that is really more the chaff of your life than the stuff on the inside that, that, that really could could, could offer something to the world. And as long as you're living in the chaff of your life, you can't really give anything to anybody else because you're going to be so motivated by insecurity and codependency, doing things for the sake of other people, but out of a motive that's not quite right. When you're living in your ego, it's all about what others think of you or keeping other people at bay. And Peter, even though he's been with Jesus for three years, he's still living in the chaff of his life. He believes in Jesus, but he's yet to encounter something that would strip that away. And that night when Peter goes on to deny Jesus three times, it is the chaff beginning to fall down. You know, the, if you separate wheat from chaff, it's a violent process. You know, you, you got to bang that stuff around to, to get it to, to loose that, those grains of wheat. And I hate to break it to you, but that's, that's usually the way that the, the, the ego has to get dealt with. You know, that's about one of the only things that, that gets through when you're living in your false self. You've got to go through some kind of suffering, something that shakes your confidence in your own abilities and giftings and your own coping mechanisms. It's painful, but it's part of the process. Peter denies Jesus the third time, and it says he, he went off weeping bitterly. He's just dejected. Have you ever let somebody down before? You ever let God down? Like you, 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 you think you, you were going to pass the test, and when the fire got turned up, you were no better than you thought. That's the thing about judgment <laughs> I've learned over the years. 
Man, it's easy to point your finger at other people and judge them for something you've never actually been tested on. And what I found is most of the time, I'm no better at parenting or marriage or being a moral person than anybody else is when I get tested. Can I get an amen? No. Peter, it is the the most devastating blow to his ego that night. Now, fast forward to the resurrection. We know Peter's encountered Jesus two times before the story that was read today. But even though his ego, the chaff of his life is beginning to come down a bit, even though there are... There, his, his self-confidence has been shaken a bit. There's still a wall up. But this wall is his own shame. You know, one of the be- biggest barriers that can get in your life, in your relationship with God, your relationship with other people, is shame. And there are so many things in our world and in our relationships that reinforce shame that make us not feel like we just did a bad thing, but we are a bad person, like, like we are actually not worth love. We're not worth good things and, and, and good relationships. You know, so much of addiction is tied to shame. It is, it is, uh, it is the pain of shame and the way that walls you off. And I got to tell you, I, mean, I, I speak about shame because I've struggled with shame a whole lot in my own journey, and it is crippling. It is crippling. It will sabotage those things. Peter's encountered the risen Christ twice, but on the beach that morning, he will encounter this Jesus who breaks through every barrier, breaking through the barrier of his own shame. See, it's interesting that Peter's out in a boat that day. Peter, We know Peter was a fisherman before Jesus called him to follow him, and And Peter, I I think one of the reasons we know that Peter is struggling with shame is because he's back out in a fishing boat. (laughs) He thinks he's disqualified himself. I thought I was Jesus' right-hand man. I thought I was the rock. Dude, I'm not worthy. I can't be counted on. I'm going to go back to fishing. At least I know that world. And so Peter goes fishing, and he talks six of the other disciples into going fishing with him, and they're out there fishing all night. I've, I've not done a whole lot of fishing in my life, and I've done zero fishing since I've lived in Louisiana, which doesn't make sense. But I talk to a lot of fishermen in Louisiana who are like, man, I just love getting out there on the boat, man, and fishing. I don't care if I catch anything or not. It's just so peaceful. I'm like, if I fish... That's not what I want to do. I like the kind of fishing where you catch fish, if I'm going to do it. <laughs> Peter and the other disciples who've all denied Jesus, they're, they're all like back on the boat, you know, and they're probably depressed. There's probably a couple of bottles of Jack Daniels on there. I'm just reading into the text, but, <laughs> but they're depressed. We actually find out that Peter's fishing naked, so that, that's a good indicator that he's drinking too. <laughs> <laughs> And they don't catch anything all night, all night fishing. Imagine being depressed. I'm going to go back to my old job. I'm going to go back to something I'm familiar with. And then you're a failure at that. And that's Peter. And they begin coming back to the shore. And I can imagine them smelling 
breakfast cooking on an open fire. They see a stranger off in the distance. And, you know, I've said something the last couple of weeks that, you know, the resurrection narratives reveal the playful side of God in, in, in a way that nothing else in the Bible does. You know, and, and, and the stranger on the shore who they don't recognize calls out, hey, guys, did you catch anything? <laughs> No, thanks for asking. Hey, why don't you throw the net on the other side of the boat? Why not? You know, when G- Jesus first calls Peter to follow him, how does Peter, Jesus get Peter's attention? It's with a miracle like this one. He says, throw your net. Peter had been fishing out all, all night in that first encounter, and, and Jesus said, throw your nets on the other side. And, and then it gets Peter's attention so, so profoundly. I guess that's the way you get a fisherman's attention, that Peter like, falls down on the ground. Get away from me. I'm a sinner, Lord. This is a very similar miracle. And I can imagine as they put the, the nets over the side of the boat and the fish start coming in to the nets that the light bulb's beginning to go off in Peter's mind. This reminds him of that first call of Jesus. Next thing we know, Peter's putting some clothes on because he was fishing naked. If you need a Bible verse for something, I'm just saying, if that's what you're into. Jesus jumps in, I mean, Peter jumps into the water. He swims to the shore. He finds Jesus is prepared a breakfast of fish and biscuits. And it's quite interesting to me that this is the second time that we see in the resurrection narratives that Jesus reveals himself in a meal, in breaking bread, in something that's nourishing. This shows something of the relational side of God. And after the dinner, Jesus looks at Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. He says, feed my sheep. He asks him again, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Then he asks him one more time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's now starting to get his feelings hurt a little bit. And and, and his answer is, Lord, you know all things. Yes, I love you. I think that that little statement is a statement of somebody who's lost confidence in themselves. It is a type of saying, Lord, I think I love you. I think I love you, but I thought I loved you just a, you know, a few nights ago when I denied you three times in your worst moment of, of suffering. Lord, you know all things. And Jesus' answer is, feed my lambs. See, the truth is, after Peter experiences this intimate moment with Jesus, this restoration, now he's actually got something he can feed sheep with. And it's not literal bread. It's, it's in him. It is that kernel of wheat that has been freed from the chaff, that is not living in the ego, that's no longer bound by shame. Now he has something to offer the world. And I believe that this is what God has for all followers of Christ, not that we would just offer answers to people, scripture verses, and just Bible studies and different things, you know, activities, but that there would be something actually nourishing 
about our presence when we get around people, we would actually be bread to other people. You know, this, the, I, I love the communion meal. I've said this before, that, you know, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, what if he's mean that we actually should be broken and poured out for other people? What if it's not just about the bread and the cup? What if Jesus is actually inviting us to live the way that he did? And I believe he is. That we wouldn't just offer answers and activities and but that we would actually be broken and poured out for other people, that our lives would nourish people. Do you have anybody in your life, do you, do you know anybody that when you get around them, you always feel built up? You, you always feel like there's something nourishing about hanging around with, with people? I know people like that. I, I, I talk to people like that all the time because I'm hungry. But I think it's interesting whether you look at Peter, whether you look at Paul, Mary Magdalene, or the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Resurrection is about encountering the resurrected Christ. I know a lot of people find resurrection a weird thing to get, you know, the literal resurrection of Jesus is a hard thing to uh, get your mind around. And, and I get people's intellectual objections to the idea that Jesus rose from the dead. And I think oftentimes the church ha- try, tries to put a lot of uh, effort in convincing people that Jesus rose from the dead. We use apologetics and stuff like that. But what I find is that nobody was trying to talk these disciples into the reality that Jesus rose from the dead. They actually experienced the risen Christ. They experienced resurrection. And wherever you are on the faith spectrum, wherever you are with those things, what you need isn't just some Bible verses or some doctrine or some theological upgrades. What you and I both need is an experience of the resurrected Christ. You know, I've shared this, but, you know, the last... uh, I, I, I spent probably a good 18 years in deconstructing my faith. It started back at, you know, probably around 1999. My first few years of being in the church, I saw some crazy, crazy stuff. I mean, really crazy. If I told you about it, you'd be like, whoa, that's crazy stuff. And my first experiences with the church, they just got me questioning everything. And I started by questioning the church, number one. And then I moved on to questioning different theological ideas. I was just like, you know, I'm not going to take anybody's word for anything. I want to search these things out myself. But I even got to a place where, you know, the, the questions got so intense for me. And this was just a few years ago, by the way, as a pastor, which that's a rough thing to do. When you're going through a season of questioning and grappling through your own faith, and you got to get up each Sunday and say something. You know, my messages got really whittled down to just a few things that I felt comfortable talking about. But things got pretty dark along the way. I'm thankful for the journey. I'm thankful that I I, I sat with these questions and searched them out. I think you got to do that. But when I say that I believe in resurrection... I believe in resurrection because I've experienced it, folks. 
I experienced a death to certain theological ideas, to certain conceptions I had about God and myself and the church. Just recently, in the last few years, I've experienced a death to these things, and it was hard, and I wanted to quit. Not just pastoring, but just quit the whole thing. It get too hard. And yet in the midst of that death, I experienced the risen Christ. I believe in resurrection, not as some mere idea that I have to give mental assent to and that I've got to have the right doctrine and the right confession. I don't think Jesus is too concerned that you just agree with an idea. I think Jesus really wants you to experience resurrection. If you're going to say amen, that's a good spot to do it. We all need to experience the resurrected Christ. And that experience may be more like Peter, where Peter's following Jesus for a while. I mean, look, my experience of resurrection, this has come after 20 years of being in ministry full time before I experienced that in such a profound way. It may be like Paul. It may be the moment you said yes to God, you had a Damascus Road experience. But if you haven't experienced life coming out of death, yes, I believe in an ultimate resurrection, but I believe we get a foretaste of it right now. Pray, Lord, whatever needs to die in my life, let it die. Whatever chaff there is in my life that I'm living out of, that I, where I'm just bound by what other people think of me, and I'm always living for the approval of others, and I'm always just trying to posture and you know, look cool to other people, whatever needs to die, Lord, let it die so that the, the, my true self, my true self created in your image that can bring hope and healing to other people can be released. Whatever shame needs to come down. Lord, let me encounter your love. Let me encounter your acceptance in the center of my being. I pray that for you. I pray that for me. It is unfortunate that in the church in the West, we've made Christianity just about agreeing with a whole bunch of ideas. But when I look at the Christianity of the New Testament before it was even a Christian religion, when I look at the Gospels, the Gospels are very much about action and experience. And I'm convinced whether you're in here today and you're, you're a Christian in good standing or a church member or whether you know, you're agnostic or atheist or you don't know what you are or you're a spiritual mutt, wherever you are on the spectrum... I believe if you genuinely start moving towards Jesus, you are going to end up experiencing Christ. Even if you don't believe that Jesus is Christ yet, take a few steps toward God. Try praying to the Lord, saying, Lord, bring healing, bring life. Bring your resurrection life forward in me. I don't know how it all happens, and I don't want to reduce this to a formula. I think that's another thing that in the evangelical church, we've reduced it so much to you just come down and pray a prayer, and you're going to go to heaven when you die, and that's all that matters. I don't think that's really what matters, because Jesus never led anybody in the sinner's prayer, but he did say one thing over and over, follow me. Follow me. It's action. 
Peter started following Jesus probably before he ever believed Jesus was the son of God. Now, he got there eventually. But because he experienced it, I believe God can be experienced. And God wants us to experience him. Why don't y'all stand? Lord, this morning, I just want to close by praying for those who may really be struggling with with shame this morning. Maybe the shame has come from what others have done to them. Maybe it's come from abuse. Maybe it's come from people who've made you feel small. Maybe it's come from people who said that you don't matter and you've internalized it and you believe it. Maybe it's even been compounded by your own failures along the way. I just pray in the name of Jesus that there would be cracks in those walls of shame. That shame wouldn't hold anyone in this room any longer. Lord, that your love would break through That everyone in here would know that you are absolutely, unconditionally loved by God. You are worth it. You are worth God coming into our world. You are worth the love that holds the universe together. But you don't need to hear me say that. I pray that you experience the resurrected Christ in your life. You would experience the love and the truth that comes with that. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.